0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising. With host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Arising with Kizu and Sabretooth. Myself today is VR, AR artist Sutu, aka Stuart Campbell. He's creator, owner of the Ijack studio platform slash app. Also the PFP project Neons on Tezos. He's also the creative director of Arts Help, the crypto creator program. Sutu, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. So tell us um brief description and, and biography of yourself and also how did you get into NFTs?
2: I'm a digital artist, animator, sort of experimenter of new media. I've been doing that for a while. Played around with interactive web design back in the day, then got into mobile apps and stuff like that. Augmented reality apps and obviously started my augmented reality company. And also, went off on a VR bender for a few years, got right into VR for a while, made a bunch of films and short stories and stuff. And yeah, now I'm like hooked on NFTs, this whole scene. I got into it uh, back in December, the year before last, because we're in the new year now. Yeah, so it was just over a year ago. And I was invited by my mates, uh, Jimmy Frew and Shorten Gardner from Eminate to collaborate with Dead Mouse, They run a, a, a record label, uh, sort of a, more of like a, a, a company that kind of connects musicians with visual artists as well as being an online record label and distribution platform. and They're kind of dabbling in all kinds of fields. But anyway, they sort of got me to team up with Dead Mouse to create a visual for some of his music. And that was released on Super Air and um, it went pretty good. Uh, It was a pretty crazy sort of Genesis piece for me. sold for quite a bit, like more than I've ever sold a piece of artwork for, that's for sure. And then shortly after that, all the sort of uh, eco-environmental concerns kind of bombshell kind of hit hit us. And I sort of had to, I was already had released uh, three more NFTs as part of a trilogy. And after that, I was like, oh, shit, better rethink what, what I'm doing here.
1: I think one of the most famous artists um, beside yourself on Tezos is, is John Carroll, and he was kind of famous for uh, essentially stopping minting on on Ethereum and moving to Tezos completely.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I wasn't like as a hardliner as John. I still have, I think I've minted about half a dozen artworks on Ethereum. I was involved in a couple of drops that were, you know other collaborative projects where the projects wanted to be on Ethereum, and I also sort of was like had a bit of an attitude of like, oh, maybe I'll mint once a month on Ethereum for a while there, and then the rest of the time on Tezos. But now I've just migrated over to Tezos, just full time. As part of sort of the,
1: the the climate change sort of issue around NFTs, you're also the creative director of arts help and they have a conscious crypto creator program
2: it's basically like a short course to onboard artists into sort of crypto art scene and yeah you can kind of learn just get the overview of kind of the environmental concern and basically you'll come out of it with some alternative options for you to choose from if you want to and you can choose to take kind of a pledge to be a conscious crypto creator and basically go with like a proof of stake blockchain or something like that. And by completing the course, you have access to apply for their grants, which is up to uh, $3.5 million worth of grants that are going out to 200 plus artists. The first round of grants, uh, I think they're launching next week and then there'll be more coming out throughout the year, different tiers of money for the grants as well.
0: I'm really interested in how you see your own aesthetic. I think obviously um, you have a very storied career as a VR, AR, XR artist. And I think all these are useful, I guess, signposts. Certainly Mm -hmm. they denote a certain approach. How much do you um, draw from art history? How much are you inspired by it? And also, I guess, how much are you in a sense rebelling against it or, or fighting that kind of mainstream narrative as it were?
2: I mean, most of my interest in my personal art is is a commentary on digital culture. I've kind of been obsessed with that for a long time um, and also trying to shape digital culture. And That's why I'm sort of interested in sort of pioneering different types of digital experiences and stuff like that. So I do like kind of pay attention to what are kind of like the latest trends and, and things like that and try to create artworks that respond to those things. And I think having that perspective on sort of like contemporary life is a good position to create innovative and fresh art because times are always changing. And, I mean, it's like it's also just a personal interest, this kind of feeling that we're kind of living in a pretty futuristic time uh, with what we can already do with technology and things like this. A lot of the artwork that I've been publishing lately is kind of more influenced by kind of contemporary graphic design and stuff like that. It's a bit of a hybrid of illustration and graphic design and animation, um, with sort of a retro vibe and even like heads up display kind of UI design and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I'll, you know, play with lighter themes and just seems that I enjoy sci-fi and stuff like that and commenting on digital culture. And some of it's trivial, some of it's fun. And it's a good time for me to explore and upskill and learn new approaches. And then I usually get to a point where I feel like, okay, I've learned all these cool new skills now. I should try and put them to, you know, a more challenging piece of work. And so I always keep my sort of keep one foot in that area of art, uh, trying to just to, yeah, just to be part of this other side of the world that's a bit more, can have an impact as well. Like the latest project that I worked on is, uh, Brianna's Garden, which is an um, augmented reality project that we created with Janaya Palmer, who's uh, Brianna Taylor's sister, uh, the late Brianna Taylor, who, you know, was fatally shot in this botched police seas, uh in the US. Yeah, a big, obviously, like a huge um, case, a huge story last year. And anyway, we... I worked with Lady Phoenix on this project and Lady Phoenix had been noticing that like Janaya Palmer had been receiving all of these horrible messages on her Instagram and stuff like that. And it was kind of realizing that there's no sort of safe public place to grieve like on the web. So we wanted to create like a, you know, a beautiful place that uses technology and allows people to visit and you could hear Janaya tell her own story. And so we captured her as a hologram and she appears in a virtual garden in AR uh, alongside like a modeled sculpture of her sister. And she tells some memories of some fond memories of her sister and just tells her little message. And then when you go up to the flowers in the garden, you can hear messages from other people that other people have left there, including Brianna's mum and other members of the family and friends and then you're invited to leave a message maybe for someone that you're missing and so it sort of became kind of like a a bit of an experiment or an attempt to explore how we grieve in public i mean and that's you know obviously steering away from the nfts um you know we didn't do any nfts for that project but there have been a lot of like nft projects over the last few months or over the last year that have been for social causes and a lot of them have been a lot of the ones that i've been involved in have been done on tezos and i think it's just really
1: there's a there's a story out there by someone who attended your talk at mod that you were prevented from entering the u.s because you did a part of a cover for the for for the for the new york times on, on donald trump is that is that true
2: well it's not clear if it was because of the artwork yeah, I, I got sent back to Australia. They didn't let me into the country. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> I was. I went, The kind of crazy thing was that I had won a um, a Mozilla grant to um, create the artwork, and it was already paid for and funded a few months before entering the US. And I was arriving in the US of the day that the exhibition was going to open that night, and it was at the Museum of Tech. So it was like pretty big sort of a deal and I mean the artwork was just like, yeah I had AR hacked the front cover of the New York Times and it was around the time that Donald Trump had pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord and I pretty much, I went researching through all of these tweaks where he was calling kind of climate change a hoax and all the other ridiculous stuff that he said over the years, just pulled them all together and I had them all tweeting around and floating around him. And then I also had all these um right hand men who were all funded, all these other politicians that were all funded by oil companies and stuff like that. <laughs> it was like pretty funny piece. And at the same time it was at the same time like the most expensive year of environmental damage America's had for half a century or something like that, just like astronomical sort of costs of uh, all these storms, one after the other. So I had all these storms playing out behind him as he was talking confidently about all these policies and shit. Um, but anyway, with that aside, like I think I just got, mostly just got like a jerk at the customs that wasn't buying it and didn't want to let me in. <laughs> so yeah, got sent what? back and it made it hard to come back in after a while. But then I got an O1. And now I'm in. You can't hold me back.
0: I think four years ago at the Biennale of Sydney, which is the main contemporary art event, it's quite prominent and also quite politically charged. So during that edition, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, who's probably one of the biggest ones, known for his activism, uh, made a work that referenced that location in Australia and also I'm just digging up some of my notes. And um, the chairman of the Sydney Biennale, who's from the Belgiano Metis family, a very prominent business family in Australia, was basically forced to resign over. I mean, the the TLDR here is basically that there was a company involved with the family, associated with the family, that had links to a detention center in Nauru, which is, I believe, just outside of Sydney as well. And a lot of artists basically boycotted the event uh, after. This was disclosed. And Mm. I I believe that Sydney is actually one of the more politically charged events. So, you know, there there have been many editions where artists have wholesale just pulled out, refused to participate, or, you know, this is possibly even during the event, they just demand that their works be withdrawn from the exhibition. And there's been quite a a history behind that. I think a lot of the so-called left-wing that resist crypto art or kind of are very wary of that space. It seems like, you know, your own practice so far has been quite progressive on that front. So you've managed to kind of tie together projects that are obviously more commercial, but also your your uh, most socially, socially just project. And that practice, you know, sometimes flowed into real space. You've been stopped at the border yourself.
2: I think the event you're talking about was at the NGV, the triennial. And the... The artists were showing their work at the same time that there were riots happening at Nauru, and the same security security guard company that was implicit in this unrest at the at the offshore detention center was the same company that was providing security at the NGV where the triennial was. Mm -hmm. So it was like an interesting kind of corporate connection, and yeah, basically like a lot of artists protested and had their works changed or the titles of their works changed to support the, yeah, to support the refugees and asylum seekers at Nauru to support their protests. That was a really interesting um, kind of boycott form of activism because the Triennial is like a huge exhibition that brings a lot of tourists to Melbourne. It has some of the best artists in the world showing their work and it's displayed really incredibly, like really well done. Definitely. I love, learning about this kind of stuff I love that art can have impact I love having conversations with artists about the ways that we can go about it I like the anarchy of it kind of shaking hands with the devil or putting them on their spots or doing all kinds of things um seeing what we can do to sort of provoke and push the needle a bit I I'm finding, I'm always learning new ways. Like I worked for 10 years with a company called Big Heart. It's spelled B-I-G-H-A-R-T. They're one of Australia's biggest um, social justice organizations. They've been doing this for a long time, this type of like creating artworks, but also, you know, creating them with communities that have been disenfranchised or with people that have just been done wrong by the system or done wrong by some circumstance, and they'll create create artworks with those people, all kinds of people, thousands of people over the years, and then they'll usually sort of bootstrap a political agenda to the pieces. And I remember, like, one of the projects I was involved with was a theatre show about, like, a, um, a young boy who died in police custody, and they did the performance and there was a lady, a young girl playing the mother of the boy. And then on this, at one point on the stage, she turns around to the audience and she says, "I'm going to break the fourth wall." I can't remember her lines, but you know, basically, she broke the fourth wall and said, "I want to thank the John Pat's real mother." John Pat was the name of the boy who died in the police cell. And um, and I want to thank her. And then suddenly, one spotlight lit up this one Aboriginal lady with dark lady with um ghostly white hair and she stood up and everyone around her just started crying because it was like two hours of really emotional story. It was a really incredible, frightening and traumatic kind of piece of Australian history, that particular case that launched like a federal investigation into Aboriginal deaths in custody and stuff. So it was a really pivotal case in Australian politics and stuff. And after hearing the whole story, You know, all these people around her just started crying. But strategically, what the company had done was had it saved the front two rows of the theatre for all the politicians. We did the show in Canberra, which is the capital city um, in Australia, the the parliament city. So I strategically kind of trapped those politicians in a room to hear this heartbreaking story for two hours And then the next day we presented to them a bunch of policy changes at Parliament House. (laughs) So it's like you kind of hit them while they're down and feeling kind of sad for what has happened. And then it's like, well, actually you can do stuff. And we had like a whole research team that went on to, you know, spend a year sort of researching what could, could be fixed to improve the situation. And there was actually like, there was a Royal Commission into the deaths in custody. The death actually happened 20 years ago and there was a Royal Commission into the into the death. And out of that Royal Commission, there was something like 220 recommendations made to the government about how to improve the situation. And only something like 20 of those were done. So there was 20, 200 outstanding still. So the research wasn't actually that difficult. It was like, well, you can start with these 200 items, <laughs> But anyway, there's the interesting thing. I always keep that in my mind for just like how powerful these projects can be, but they also have to be strategically coordinated with these kind of political moments, creating like a action moment.
1: I want to talk specifically, I guess, about Neons, right, which is your uh, 10K project, if it changed your relationship with your collectors, because prior to, to Neons, you were mostly dropping sort of additions, but... You know, a 10K project, you know, is a, is a completely different animal.
2: With the 10K project, there's kind of like a commitment to roll out this beast as a kind of an evolving IP. It's an interesting concept. It's evolving like every every week. There's a, We have a pretty active Discord uh, with all the collectors, and lots of conversations going on in there. I've already I proposed like a fairly loose roadmap. A lot of my ideas for the roadmap were sort of, uh, surrounding kind of Web3 innovation and how to bring um, and use like Neons to leverage that and kind of, again, like innovate, sort of show. I wanted like one of the driving force for me is to sort of show that all of this stuff that's happening on Ethereum is possible on Tezos. <laughs> it's like, I wanted to show that for starters, like it's all possible. There's a huge community there. We can do it well and we can probably do it better with the right team and the right people. And we can also do it without um, all this ridiculous venture capital that's going around, like me and my business partner, Lucas, who's an early programmer. I mean, it was mostly just me and him working on the uh, generative system to create it. And then my other mate, Chandru, uh, was managing the Discord and being the hype machine. And, um, yeah, between the three of us, we pulled it off and I know a lot of these other projects have like whole teams or they've got like the studios working around the clock and all that kind of stuff. So I sort of was pretty proud of us for pulling it off to begin with. And now it's given us a lot of um, energy to keep pushing this beast further. We're going to be doing a launch uh, augmented reality um, neons uh, on the 21st of January. And that's where we'll bring all 10,000 neons into AR. Uh, That'll be cool. You'll be able to sync your wallet with my iJack app and see your neons floating in front of you as a glowing neon sign and you can go and stick it around your streets or whatever you like. And we've also added like some other cool little Easter eggs in there as well, uh, which I won't talk too much about now, but some cool other experimental effects that we're playing around with that you can do in AR. And then later on, I'll be releasing like a, uh, a WebGL suited which would be like a 3D immersive sort of game environment where you can kind of cruise around in there and collecting some bolts like an in-game currency that lets you unlock things and activate stuff and collect new NFTs and mint stuff in there. And that I'm really excited about because it's kind of a uh, return to my other passion, which has been like creating immersive Unity-based environments and stuff, but the key thing that connects all of these things is this new Web3 layer. So, when you sync your wallet with the iJack app, the AR experience, you scans for your neons and brings them up in AR, along with any other iJack inventory items that we might have deployed, and um, and then is you sync your wallet with the WebGL you get a similar result. It scans your wallet and it activates um, your neons in that environment, but also based on the traits that you have, the traits are going to be instrumental in how you can navigate through that environment along with these other Middle Easter eggs that I mentioned before. So the NFTs that you're holding can change the experience that you have. And I'm really I really like that idea. I like that there's a you're carrying a signature with you all of all of a sudden, and that sort of signature unlocks new doors uh, wherever you go. And I'm kind of like really keen to explore that more. Uh, I feel like it's super powerful.
1: You you were kind of super early into sort of AR VR, and now. You know, that has been, I guess, it, it's synonymous with what people associate with, you know, this concept called a,
2: called a metaverse. And
1: since you've been in it early, like, what is your, I guess,
2: opinion on this? I definitely see it's inevitable. Um, I've kind of been harping on about it for, I don't know, since 2006. Yeah, I did like a whole 24-episode cyberpunk comic all about it Um, (laughs) back in – that launched in around 2008. And, yeah, it was kind of describing the metaverse, you know, just being able to seamlessly navigate between virtual environments that are either overlapping your physical world or uh, completely opaque so you can't see the physical world and you're immersed in them. And, yeah, exploring that kind of – the culture that comes out of that. I think what will be interesting interesting is to see kind of what will become the big ones and how the indie ones will survive. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, for example, a couple of my mates, like Beats, who creates the Here and Now gallery, which is also a WebGL uni based experience, and another friend, Lex, who's created Pixel Tez, which is like a little pixel adventure um, game, also created Unity as a WebGL thing. And I was like, oh, wow, it would be so cool if, like, you could just go through a portal from Pixel Tez to here and now to the pseudoverse, and we'd start to create our own little web ring of metaverses, you know. And I was like, maybe this is possible. Maybe there's some kind of bridging uh, technologies in the same way that You can navigate from one website to another, but make it more seamless. And if there can be some sort of interoperability of assets, and Lex is already creating some neons to appear in Pixel Towns, for example, which is kind of funny and and cute looking. Yeah, I'm kind of like there's one interest just to see how you know badly Meta or Facebook fucks it up. (laughs) That'll be one curiosity that I have because I saw their earlier attempts and it just looked horrendous. And then the other interest that I have is just to see how the whole indie scene kind of responds. Because I think what we're all really liking right now is this empowerment that we have kind of like, especially all the artists on the Tezo's community. And there's a really feeling of uh, governance of the direction of uh, platforms there and uh, influencing the the sort of decisions that may, are being made, and yeah, a lot of talk about Tesla's metaverses of late. So we'll see Please, see how it works out.
1: A lot of the quote unquote sort of metaverse projects or in crypto seem to be basically taking an existing concept, like you say, so VR chat, or we're talking about Roblox or Minecraft or, or Second Life, and then just kind of adding sprinkle a bit of crypto on it. Maybe you can buy and sell the land underneath. Mm. Uh, and and I'm not too sure whether that's actually the way that it'll, it'll kind of take off. I'm thinking there'll be something that can only be done in crypto and can't actually be done in, in Web2, but I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts on it.
2: Yeah, I think that um, logging in with your crypto wallet is pretty cool, though. Like this idea that you could bring your assets into these um, environments seamlessly is kind of the uh, multiple environments. That's kind of like the the a holy grail. Even though as assets become more complicated, it becomes more complicated to have them implemented into the different worlds. Like say, I mean it's easy enough to drop like a, a GLF uh GLTF file or a um or a JPEG or a MP4 into these various environments. These formats are supported easily. But, like, as the sort of whole space evolves, you know, my buddies over at Jadu, for example, are doing the hoverboards and jetpacks. And they've got an interesting approach where they're bringing various PFP projects into their ecosystem and allowing those PFPs to fly around on their hoverboards. So, their hoverboards become kind of like a mode of transport for. Their own AR metaverse. But the thing is, like all of these different PFP projects, the more that they integrate into their platform, can start to use the one hoverboard. So it becomes, it has a bit more utility. And I thought that was kind of like a pretty interesting approach to it. And then I think they are trying to do deals with other um, metaverse platforms so that their hoverboards, which basically just float above the ground and people can jump on them and 3d characters can jump on them and then you can move them around with a controller, accelerate back and forth at different speeds, depending on what your hoverboards traits are that I re- imagine would require like a little API to integrate into the platform. And I'm, I think they're building all their stuff with unity as well. So maybe like other platforms that use unity as a base would be their first candidates because there's already, some sort of compatibility using similar platforms. So I suppose, yeah, like those types of scenarios where you can just, you know, log in with your crypto wallet and bring your whole digital life with you into these different virtual environments is the holy grail for this stuff. And for those items to still work as they should, uh, it'll get more like the Ready Player One kind of film is the uh, is the kind of best contemporary expression of what the metaverse dream is i guess it's pretty fresh in everyone's memory still
0: Uh, i feel like it's going to be a tough one for suru who is your favorite artist
2: Uh, i'd have to say moebius deceased but still all-time great the goat yeah moebius for sure
1: cool suru it's been a pleasure having you come on the show
0: Thank you for joining me for this episode of Flora's Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Flora's Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Flora's Rising.